another Real Weird Podcast. October 7th, A Long Night at Camp Blood, Friday the 13th franchise. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to be talking about Friday the 13th today. Unfortunately, we don't have a Friday the 13th this month, but you know how it is. So, I just want to give some background on this first. I want to mention uh, Sean S. Cunningham, the guy who directed the original. He's predominantly known for this, but he... Up to this point, made mostly a bunch of comedic films like Spring Break, Manny's Orphans, Here Come the Tigers. He did a handful of thriller and other horror movies before and after, though. But as for horror, he was, up to this point, primarily known for being a producer. He previously worked for... He worked as a producer on Wes Craven's uh, rather infamous director's debut, Last House on the Left. So... Prompted by the success of Carpenter's Halloween, which, yes, he has just flat out said that asked why asked why he didn't get involved with any of the sequels was because he just wanted to make a cash in. He wanted to, like, ride the slasher wave that Halloween had sort of kicked up. And they had this script done by mid-1979, uh, him and his friend Victor Miller. And Cunningham himself said he wanted to have it be more of like a roller coaster ride than, say, Last House on the Left was. And I don't blame him because, you know, that movie's still pretty heavy stuff, the original one. But, you know, it's been fairly rehabilitated. You're, you're allowed to like it without people thinking that there's something horribly wrong with you. <laughs> it sort of worked its way into the horror canon, as it were. And I mean, basically everyone other than like Roger Emert was just foaming at the mouth about it. So production on the first movie began in 1979. I mean, I'm going to be honest, the first one I'm not particularly crazy about. It's kind of dull, honestly. I mean, it has some really cool kills, courtesy of Tom Savini. Great music, courtesy of Harry Manfredini. And by the way, I'm not going to fucking give you a spoiler warning about this, because if you have seen Scream, then you know this fucking twist. It's because you know the fucking twist if you've, like, seen the first Scream movie. Yeah, Jason's not the killer in this one, and frankly, it doesn't make any sense as to why he even showed up, but we'll get into that. Betsy Palmer at the end is pretty good when she shows up. It just kind of goes really crazy when she's playing Pamela, but... A lot of the kills are just very brief and relatively bloodless. And honestly, there's just not really much shown as to why the... As far as the kills themselves are concerned. So sometimes you're kind of wondering, like, what the hell happened, but, like, not in a good way. I mean, aside from some really stupid sequence where everyone freaks out over a snake in the cabin. Uh, some couple of funny jokes, but there's no real sense of urgency throughout. The character, you know, Crazy Ralph, the, like, freaky guy going, you're doomed, you're all doomed. Apparently he was included to be, like, a red herring for the reveal of the killer, but honestly, I saw this movie when I was, like, really, really young before I had any background in it, and I never expected him to be one. So if they were trying to, like, have him be, you know, a possible suspect for the killer, it didn't really work. 
And as far as the reveal itself goes, it's like there's basically no setup in the movie for it. And it's one of those ones where if you just know a little bit about the movie, you've probably know the twist already. And, you know, there's nothing in the movie to give in any rewatch value regarding that twist. So it's just not that good of a plot twist, honestly. But, you know, it's still definitely worth a watch, I'd say, especially if you like, you know, slasher movies in general, however much of a guilty pleasure you may qualify it as. And it was such a success that literally the next year, they made part two. And again, I still cannot wrap my head around the justification for Jason being the killer. Like, it was like ten years between his supposed drowning and his mom, like, killing people. And apparently he was alive all this time and just didn't tell her at all. I don't think they ever really addressed that. But, you know, this one, as far as I'm concerned, is actually one of the better ones in the franchise, part two anyway. So basically, it sh- we get a flashback of the first movie. Uh, cuts to about, I think it's, I think it's like five years between the first one and the start of the second one. Uh, also, be warned when you watch this, it's going to look a little silly just because this is Jason pre-hockey mask. He's got, like, he's got, like, overalls, a flannel shirt, and, like, a burlap, like, a burlap sack over his head. Uh, Farmer Jason, <laughs> as my, as my little brother called him. But, yeah, I say that the characters are slightly interesting slightly more interesting. Uh, The pacing is a lot better than the first movie, so I'd say it's just a bit below part four in terms of quality. But we'll get back to the... We'll get to the ranking at the end of this. And also, as far as the final girl in any of these movies go, yeah, Jenny Field is up there. Uh, Named after one of the production... uh, After one of the production staff, as it turns out. And we're going to go into part three, and I just want to say this is where the continuity just gets really fucking stupid. (laughs) Because, you know, it's five years between, you know, the first one and the second one. And then two, three, and four take place over the course of, like, a weekend. Like a very, like a long weekend. Like, they're within days of each other. And there's just no continuity. Part three was filmed in 3D, uh, which it's not exactly the best 3D. It's just a whole bunch of things where people are just obnoxiously facing the camera, and you can kind of tell. But I actually learned a funny little bit of trivia about this type of 3D. I don't know what the details were, but the reason a lot of theaters didn't end up showing it in 3D later was because, you know, you've heard the phrase, the silver screen, this type of 3D did require a a literal silver screen. Like, some of the backdrops would have silver thread in them. And I guess if you didn't have that, then you couldn't actually show them in 3D. But it honestly doesn't really add anything. It just kind of feels like a gimmick. 
the characters in this one are really forgettable, even by like slasher movie standards. Um, but this is the one where he finally gets the mask, and it's the only real bit of continuity. Uh, aside from part five, we'll get into that. But it's the reason why in all the subsequent movies, Jason's mask is a little damaged. He gets like an axe into the face near the end of it, and it leaves a little gash in it, and the gash is in every subsequent movie. And that's really the only bit of continuity that they have between the different movies. <laughs> uh, what else is there? Oh, yeah. And there's also just the fact that, you know, Jason pretty much gets unmasked in every movie he's in, and going again with the continuity, he looks completely different every single time. I mean, that's kind of more... It's kind of forgivable when you get into the later movies because he's basically a zombie at that point. But, like I said, parts two, three, and four are days away from each other and he looks completely different in every single movie. But that one ends and it leads into... Uh, leads into part four, the final chapter. Yeah. As Jay Bauman on Red Letter Media pointed out, not only is it not the final movie, it's not even the only movie in the franchise to have final in the title and not be the final one. But this was directed by Joseph Zito, who before this was known for making a couple of films with Chuck Norris and also made what I can only describe as the most generic slasher there is. It's called The Prowler. And I mean, it's it's still worth a watch, but the only thing that makes it stand out is some of the some of the effects they had in the movie because they brought Tom Savini in on that one. There's like a there's like a really fantastic like head explosion scene near the end, but it's not much else to talk about for The Prowler. Final chapter, on the other hand, you know, they brought back they brought back Harry Manfredini, they brought back Tom Savini because they thought they were gonna, you know, just kill off the creation, just put a bow on it. And they had a couple of actually I it is one of the best kinds of setup for these movies, though, for me anyway. It's it's not even like they're trying to get the camp open again. It's just like a family living in the area, and there's like some teens that rented a cabin nearby. And, you know, these guys, the teens feel like they've just wandered off the set of a John Hughes movie, because, you know, you got... I don't remember all of their names, obviously, because it's been a while, but, you know, you got the one who's got the, you know, reputation around, even though she doesn't actually do it. She's just interested in the one guy. You got the one girl who's kind of like coy about it. You got Ted, who's kind of like your cliche kind of jock. And aside from that, you've got the Jarvis family living nearby with uh, Tommy being played by uh, one of our two before they were famous actors here, Corey Feldman. Who, you know, I've been getting into a lot of 80s movies lately, and I gotta say, he's, like, one of the best, like, child actors I've seen. 
everything he does is just you feel you kind of imagine that's how like a real kid would act in a lot of these scenarios. But it's his uh, mom, it's his older sister Trish, and his dog uh, Gordon, adorable little golden retriever. And I just love the like way he's set up. It's just he's just this precocious little kid who likes you know computer games, monster movies. He's actually made a bunch of uh, you know mess. I I do sometimes wonder, and I've never been able to find this out. I wonder if they named him Tommy just because, you know, he's a little Tom Savini. Um, yeah. But, yeah, this production was hell, apparently. Like, Corey Feldman apparently hated work in the director afterwards. Because especially, there's a scene where... Um, there's a scene near the end where Jason, like, bursts through the windows and grabs, grabs Tommy... That wasn't, like, his reaction in it is genuine, because you see, because they didn't tell him that's what they were going to do for that scene. So when you see Tommy freak out, that's Corey Feldman's genuine response. Um, one of the actresses got hypothermia from staying in the lake too long between takes, and one of the other actors wanted some crash pads because... You know, filming his death scene, the stuntman playing Jason accidentally slammed him into the wall really hard. Yeah, Zito, Zito made a good movie here, but from what I was told about it, he was kind of a piece of shit to the, to the actors. Like, it got to the point, I think, I remember where the stuntman, Ted White, who was playing Jason, actually wanted his name taken off the off the credits because he was just so pissed off with the director. But in addition to that, the nice bit of trivia that I learned about Ted White was that <laughs> he was like one of those old school Hollywood stuntmen. Like if you stuntman. Like he was in a universal monster movie. Creature one of his earliest credits was Creature from the Black Lagoon. And he was actually the oldest to play Jason because he was getting close to being 60 years old at the time. And I do appreciate the fact that he tried to like stick up for some of the actors. But, you know, as I've heard for the for this movie, there's just the appropriate amount of artistry. Like you see this one scene where like the way that a lot of the kills are set up is that it they drag the scene on just long enough to get you kind of on the edge of your seat and then just before you're like okay let's wrap this up then the kill comes and part of that's also just the fact that they had to you know edit it down because by the time this movie came out the MPAA was getting you know really touchy about a lot of the violence in movies so I think, in a way, it kind of unintentionally helped the movie, because in editing it, they made the scenes a lot more frantic, because you just see, like, the impact, and then it cuts away, and you're like, oh, God, that actually looks <laughs> that looks really painful. And there's a lot of great scenes like that where... <laughs> like, one of the... 
one of the twins that shows up at the ca- at the cabin. She goes outside, and it's a th- you know thunder and lightning storm, and you just see like the silhouette. There's a lightning flash, and you just see Jason like impaler with a barge pole or something. And then the camera just goes past, zooms in on the house, and you just see like her body slam against the wall. So you know stuff like that. It's it's not anything too great. But there's a bit more like creativity in the way people are killed off in this. You get this guy named Rob showing up who's trying to like track down Jason because Jason killed his sister. Um, again, I forget her name, but uh, if you watch part two, she's the girl that's like you know having sex with her boyfriend, and Jason just creeps in and just like impales the two of them with a fishing spear while they're in bed together. Uh, but yeah, going along with it, like, wouldn't it make him, would it make a little more sense if he was like, you know, Alice's brother or maybe Jenny's? Cause like I said, that was only a few days ago in universe. He's out in the woods. Like he's been doing this for a while. Uh, as far as some of the other kills go, there's like one where a guy, Jason basically just bursts his hand through, like, the glass pane of a shower door. And just, like, beats a guy's head against the wall. Um, <laughs> there's, of course, the infamous scene where a guy goes out to, you know, meet his date on a little raft in the lake and just, I'm going to be blunt, he just gets a harpoon in the dick. <laughs> but... Yeah, overall, all the kills in this one are really good. They're really well executed. Um, And I think the way they did things was that the way they killed off Jason at the end, they wanted it to be really, really uh, gratuitous. So they were, so they hoped, and, you know, they achieved this to a degree. They were hoping that if they cut bits of all the others out, they could keep more of that at the end of it. And it still had to get edited down, but it was more or less intact than all the others from, you know, looking at the outtakes. And, yeah, actually, something I skipped by with 2 that also applies here. In 2, it's kind of set up that uh, Ginny Field is actually studying, like, child psychology. And that actually plays a role in, you know, fighting Jason at the end. She finds this little shack that I guess Jason is just living out of, and he has a little, like, shrine with his mother's head in it. And she basically just puts on, you know, Pamela's sweater and just starts talking to him like she's his mom. And it actually gets him to, like, mellow out for a while. But here Tommy does something... Kind of similar. He like sees all the newspaper clippings of like Jason's past and kind of thinking, thinking on his feet a little bit. He just sort of like haphazardly shaves his head to kind of look like, sort of look like how Jason looked in life. And that actually gets him to calm down enough that they can like defeat him because I don't know if it's just him kind of like having bad flashbacks to his youth or just 
not really being able to process what he's seeing. But, yeah, they managed to get in Jason's head a little bit. Which is, you know, a little bit of a nice touch because a lot of these... You know, I love I love the whole franchise, however stupid they get, but Jason works best as a symbol. So these couple instances where, you know, they're actually treating him like a bit of a character in a, in a way, it is at least kind of interesting. So yeah, that was part four. And, you know, <laughs> the reason it was called the final chapter is because it was supposed to be. Because, you know, Paramount, you know, they were a big business, but they were so embarrassed by having <laughs> these movies in their catalog. It's like, you know, we're a big studio, we're better than this. So let's just make one more and just wrap the whole thing up. But, the, then, but then that fourth one makes so much money. And they're like, eh, you know what, Let, let's keep going with this. So, you know, a new beginning... So, yeah, Part 5, A New Beginning, came out. It was originally intended to be the start of a new trilogy in the franchise, but that plan was scrapped after the fan reaction was, like, so horrible, despite how financially successful it was. You know, it's it's the black sheep of the family in this case. It's basically the Halloween 3 for Friday the 13th. Uh, the reason I say that is because, you know, spoiler alert, Jason's not the killer in this one. It's a copycat. It's not actually Jason. It was shot with a different title. Uh, most of the cast was not told that it was a Friday the 13th movie until they were already signed and under contract. Uh, John Shepard, who's playing a sort of like grown-up uh, Tommy Jarvis in this one, was reportedly very upset by this. Uh Kind of similar to like you know Nightmare on Elm Street three, it takes place at this sort of group home group home for troubled youth. It was directed by uh, Danny Steinman, who directed. It's mostly known for directing a couple of porno films and the sort of vigilante revenge movie Savage Streets with Linda Blair. And it kind of tells you this was the only movie he did that was a financial success. Um, <laughs> and this is basically what I like to call a wood chipper slasher because like there's almost 20 minutes. Cause even to the point where we're almost at like 20 minutes left in the movie and we're still introducing new characters just to get killed off. And like half the characters <laughs> basically just get killed within the same scene that they're introduced, which is kind of like one of the worst things you can do with a slasher movie, although it's so ridiculous and over the top here that it's kind of fun. Uh, you got the guy, you got the little kid, Reggie, who's like the younger brother of this uh, character played by uh, Miguel Nunez, who's an actor from Return of the Living Dead. And <laughs> it's... It's hilarious to me when his brother is introduced because it's one of those lines where it's not funny because of what it is. It's just funny because of the way it's said. He has some bad enchiladas and he goes into the outhouse and he and his girlfriend are just singing to each other while he's having diarrhea. (laughs) 
and that's kind of one of the charms of it in a way is that it's such a dumb fucking sleazy movie. It just feels so fucking gross watching it because everyone is talking like your stereotypical New Yorker and they just have some kind of attitude. They're just swearing constantly. There's this like redneck lady who lives next door who's constantly just telling off the sheriff and the people running the home. He's got kind of overweight man-child of a son. Yeah, it's just the weird, bizarre cast of quote-unquote characters that really makes the movie kind of enjoyable. The ending makes no fucking sense, but it doesn't really matter because, like I said, financially successful, but the fan reaction was so, like, a horrid towards this one that it was basically retconned immediately. It was never really brought up again in the entire series. Um, so, yeah... After that, uh, Tom McLaughlin came in, and he directed Jason Lives, which, for me, not only has the distinction of being the best in the franchise, but also has the distinction of getting Gene Siskel to say something mildly positive about a Friday the 13th movie. (laughs) Because, yeah, he and Roger Ebert fucking hated these movies. And, like, Ebert was a guy who would normally defend movies that had, you know, bad critical reception if he thought there was something worth talking about, but, you know. So, yeah, six one in. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like Halloween 4. It's like, no one likes Halloween 3, so we gotta let everyone know we're bringing Michael back. This one's kind of in the similar boat. It's like, we're advertising the fact that Jason is back here. But, I think I really... The reason I say I love this one the most, why it's the best of the franchise for me, is that, you know, Zito had a degree of artistry to his movie. It wasn't anything spectacular, but, like, he hit the ceiling of quality that I expect with movies like this. But I'd say Part 6 is the only one to break it. Um... There's a lot of, like, really gothic... Well, okay, there's a lot of, like, good atmospheric stuff. Um, It basically kind of feels like a hybridized version of, you know, a slasher movie with, like, one of the old Universal monster movies in terms of the atmosphere they were going with. Like, Fog in the Woods at Night, it's not particularly realistic, but it has that sort of, like, creepy atmosphere to it. Um, you have fairly small cast of characters here, so it's easy to keep track of everyone. The we get another Return of the Living Dead cast member in this, uh, playing Tommy Jarvis. Just gonna look up his name real. Oh yeah, Tom Matthews. 
So, so yeah, Tom Matthews is playing the new, the new actually canon Tommy Jarvis, who's grown up. Um, apparently, spent some time in asylum, I guess, and he's going back to the cemetery in Crystal Lake to do his best to destroy Jason's body. Just, you know, make sure he's dead. And in case you don't believe me about the Universal Monster movie influence, he and his friend dig up the body. Um, and just as they're about to, like, douse it in gasoline and burn it, he just grabs, like, a loose bit of metal off the fence this, like, wrought iron fence, and he just starts stabbing Jason's corpse repeatedly in the heart. <laughs> and what do you know? A thunderstorm starts, and it he gets brought back by a bolt of lightning. And I love the look of Jason in this especially, because he looks like, the way someone described it, was an old EC comic school. The skin's kind of, like, rotting, and there's, like, maggots everywhere. It's really fucking gross. But, you know, that's kind of the point. The and there's this kind of like darkly funny scene where the rain starts and you know Tommy manages to like douse him with gasoline and he tries to get the you know his lighter going he keeps clicking it but it's raining out so he can't get it started and he cuts back and Jason's just like just patiently standing there he's just gonna let this happen and Tommy just gets so freaked out that he just gets back in the truck and runs away Jason grabs his mask. He picks up the little, like, shaft of wrought iron that he was using as a spear. And he just turns to the camera, and we get probably, like, one of the funnier, just sort of stupid moments in the movie. There's this weird sort of, like, James Bond-style sequence where it just zooms into, like, his pupil, and there's this, like, ghost Jason that just enters from the side, like, James Bond-style. He turns over to the camera and just slashes with his machete. There's like a spray of red everywhere, and then it's the title. It's kind of random for a slasher movie, but it's still kind of funny in its own way, which I appreciate. Um, Yeah, the best thing about this one is that in addition to just being probably the only one I'd say is a legit good movie, besides just being a good Friday the 13th movie, is that is that there's a fair amount of comedy, and it kind of builds Jason up to being this almost mythic creature. Like, he does feel like an old-school movie monster, just with the degree, because he's basically back from hell at this point. So, according to Tom McLaughlin, the director, he said that he wanted to have a lot of the stuff Jason did in this be stuff that you couldn't really do as a regular human being. Like, one of the cops near the end of the movie, he just, he doesn't use any weapons. He just crushes the guy's head with his hands. He throws a knife so hard at another guy that it just goes right through his skull and into his brain. But there's also, like, a lot of funny moments, including the scene transitions, like, well, that scene where Jason throws a knife into the guy's head and it cuts back to the sheriff's office, it's a dart going into a dartboard, which is, for some reason, on the inside of a door, which, yeah, don't do that. That's that's a safety hazard. 
That's a good way to get a manslaughter charge. But in addition to that, there's you know Sheriff Garris, reference to Mick Garris, who's you know, a very famous like horror director. Uh, he has his own sort of podcast. He was responsible for getting the Masters of Horror series together, which we'll be talking about later this month. And in addition to that, there's also like, you know, they mentioned something about like the town of Carpenter. There's Cunningham Road. There's a scene where Tommy's kind of on the run and he stops by this general store and it's uh, like Karloff's Dry Goods or something like that. Um, <laughs> and especially the character is an extremely likable character in the Sheriff's Daughter. Uh, Megan, where, you know, she likes Tommy almost more so because her dad tells her to stay away from him. And it's definitely that sort of like, she's just bored in her small town. It's that kind of rebel teenage rebelliousness. So there's like a lot of the snarky kids and the only, and especially because I like, Especially one of the things I love about the movie is just the fact that it was kind of one of the like earlier moments of like meta humor in a horror movie. Because I think this was like 10 years before Scream. And there's a scene where, you know, Tommy is getting chased around by, by the police. And because they think he's just either crazy or he's the one doing these killings. And, you know... The Undertaker at the local cemetery is just trying to, like, you know, get Jason's grave buried again. He's just like, why the hell did they have to go to dig up Jason? And he just looks straight into the camera and says, some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. <laughs> and like I said, this was like 10 years before Scream, and they, you know, they have that same kind of attitude where they're in, kind of indicting the audience for enjoying this kind of trash. And there's a scene earlier where a couple of the counselors are, like, driving on a back road trying to get to Crystal Lake because they're trying to fucking open it again, despite the fact there's murders every time it happens. And he's like, Jeff, we better turn back. Why? Because I see enough horror movies to know any freak wearing a mask is not friendly. And it just cuts to Jason just standing in the middle of the road. Yeah, like I told my friends, like this was 10 years before Scream. So it's kind of funny seeing that sort of meta humor getting in there early. Uh... Yeah, unfortunately, I'll say that the great performances by Kane Hodder aside, for me anyway, this is where it just starts going like really downhill. The next few ones are going to be kind of short just because I don't think there's really much to talk about. Uh, I'm going to be skipping Freddy vs. Jason because I'm going to be talking about that tomorrow with Nightmare on Elm Street. So... As far as part seven goes, the new blood, um, I'm not going to say how, but one of the ways Jason was sort of quote unquote killed at the end of part six, uh, he accidentally gets released by this young girl who has telekinetic powers. Yep. This is basically Jason versus Carrie, which I'm going to be honest. I'm not bothered by that. I like that concept, but I feel like at this point, this is just where, yeah, 
sure, whatever. There's no consistency between these movies, so I'm willing to just take anything. Um, yeah, the end scene where she's just going like all out with her powers and using it to fight Jason is actually pretty cool. And this is the first one where we get Kane Hodder playing Jason. And I love his performance as Jason. I know that sounds a little weird because Jason basically doesn't do much. Just, you know, stand around and look menacing. But the way Kane Hodder has that sort of like heavy breathing where he just kind of like puffs his chest out and sort of raises his shoulders, it kind of gives you the sense of like just anger, I guess, which is, you know, kind of perfect given Jason's backstory. Like he was like deformed and or, you know, mentally disabled, whichever like continuity we're looking at. He was bullied by the other kids. He was drowned because the counselors were too busy. He just literally and figuratively fucking around and weren't looking after him. And then at some points, again, I don't know what was keeping him from just letting his mom know that he was alive. But he sees his mom beheaded at some point, apparently. So, you know, that's the start of a good aspect of the later movies, I'd say. Especially considering the fact that after part six, you don't have the sort of Harry Manfredini-style score anymore. So, it's a bit of loss of... Actually, no, wait. Sorry, my bad. Harry Manfredini's music was used basically up until uh, part eight. But, yeah. Like, one of the guys on Red Letter Media said, it's basically comfort food. As far as movies go. As far as these movies go. You kind of want it to be the same. You just want to, like, change it just a bit. I like the analogy. It's like, just take those mashed potatoes and put some bacon bits on them. It'll be fine. (laughs) But I would say part seven's, like, one of my... I think it's... I think it's a bit overhated as far as the later ones go. I don't mind part eight that much either, but, you know, I get why people don't like this one because it's called Jason takes Manhattan, but he spends the majority of the movie on a boat. And when they get to, you know, Manhattan, it's not Manhattan, it's Vancouver. I do like the overall idea of it, even if it's a bit weird. Um, Honestly, the boat too is actually a cool setting just because kind of gives a bit of like, there's a lack of, ease of escape, basically. It's a nice little claustrophobic setting for everyone to get killed in. Um, I'll say a lot of the kills in here were a little more far-fetched than you'd expect for the series. Because, you know, even with, like, Jason just going, like, full, you know, brute strength zombie mode, um, a lot of those kills still seemed a bit plausible. But there are, like, a couple of funny moments, too. Um, I mean, aside from that ending with the toxic waste in the sewers, that was fucking stupid. But I love the scene where Jason's just, like, chasing them through, like, the streets. He's just kind of walking along, and he just kicks some guy's boombox. It's like... And, you know, they're just, like, street punks. They, like, try to square up to face him. He just turns around, and he's facing away from the screen. He just lifts up his mask, and they're just all like, okay, no, we don't want this. 
Or the scene where, like, the the boxing, the guy who's, like, a boxing champ for the school. You know, there's, like, really, like, upbeat, almost, like, Rocky-style music, and he just starts laying into Jason, and Jason's, like, not really showing any pain. He's just kind of, like, backstepping. And he's just, like, out of breath. He's like, all right, give it your best shot. And Jason just, like, puts his hand on his chest, and he just uppercuts the guy's head clean off. <laughs> so I will say it does still have a couple of, like, funny moments that are kind of, that kind of bring it up just a little bit. And like I said, this is the last to really have the sort of, like, samey feel that is kind of nice for these kinds of movies. The next one up is Jason Goes to Hell, and, yeah, this is where things kind of started to be a bit of a problem. It was meant to be part of the thing that set up the eventual crossover that we did eventually get with Freddy vs. Jason. And, like, I'm I'm going to be honest, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible movie as Friday the 13th. It's kind of okay on its own. It's just its own thing. But the thing is, New Line Cinema recently took over the over the franchise, but they didn't have the rights to anything except for Jason himself. So that's kind of why this and Jason X don't actually have Friday the 13th in the title. Like, this one is just Jason Goes to Hell. It's not like Friday the... Th- it's not officially titled Friday the 13th Part 9. So... Like, it's a fun little subversion that they set up at the beginning. The beginning of that one starts with, like, every fucking cliche possible. You know, there's this girl. She goes to the cabin on her own. It's the middle of the night. She undresses and gets in the shower. Jason pops up. She runs away. And then we find out that this was actually a trap set by, I think, the FBI. I don't... And they just unload every bit of ordinance they have on them, like, they shoot him with like shotguns, rifles, grenade launchers to the point where he gets blown up in the first like five minutes. But then we follow to the autopsy room and then I guess at some point Jason is just like this weird little body hopping slug monster. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is with that. Not to mention the lore of this involves, you know, um, him finding a sister so that he can, like, finding a blood relative to kill her, which apparently he has at some point, because there's some, like, weird curse that says only his blood relatives can, like, fully kill him. And, yeah, it's weird. Like, I know they didn't have the rights to anything except for the character Jason himself and some of the other names like Crystal Lake, but they basically just straight up turned turned Jason into this weird mix of like Freddy, Michael, and Beetlejuice. And the only real thing of note is that the foreshadowing at the end of the movie is that you know, we get the setup for Freddy versus Jason. There's this weird moment where like the souls of Jason's victims come up and like drag him down to hell. We just get to see Jason's mask just lying there on the ground. You just see Freddy's arm come up and just pull the mask under. So 
So that was the setup. But even then, we'll get into this more tomorrow. But, you know, that crossover got stuck in development hell so, so long that Jason X had to be made because otherwise they'd lose the right to the property because they weren't doing anything with it. And, yeah, Jason X. Where to fucking begin with this one? It's, it is almost like Jason Goes to Hell, but in reverse. It is a, it's better as a Friday the 13th movie than Jason Goes to Hell, but it is so much fucking worse as a movie. It is campy to an insane degree to the point where it doesn't feel like anyone on set is taking this seriously. But it is still fun. And for what it's worth, Jason still feels like Jason in this movie. Uh, that was actually one of the rules for part six. Tom McLaughlin asked the producers if they if he could add a bit more humor, and they said, sure, but don't make fun of Jason. And they never do. Like, even in Jason X, Jason is still treated fairly... still treated fairly seriously. Um, there's this scene where it's like a hologram that's like every horror movie cliche. Um... And there's this one scene where kind of mimicking the sleeping bag kill from part seven. Jason's got like one of them pinned on the ground. And he's like stuffed another one in a sleeping bag and he's using the one in the sleeping bag as like a blunt weapon. Yeah. Jason just said, I'm going to beat that motherfucker with another motherfucker. But he's really confused as to why they're not dying because he doesn't realize they're just holograms. Um, basically, it's this like starship crew... Uh, Earth is just super fucking polluted at this point. And the intro scene is basically Jason gets captured and he gets frozen in cryostasis because he tries to escape when they try to take him somewhere to be studied. Because, you know, they want to know why the fuck this guy is not dying. But he gets loose and one of the scientists decides to basically freeze him in cryostasis. And she ends up getting killed in the process, but he gets frozen there. And, you know, this crew coming back to try and check up on Earth, see if there's any possibility of, like, rehabilitating the planet. They accidentally, they bring him on board the ship and they accidentally revive him with their technology. Um, like, the... The sort of like metallic skin that Jason has that he's usually shown with that doesn't actually happen until like the last like twenty minutes of the movie. Uh, it's just regular Jason for most of it. But yeah, there's really not again. There's really not much to say with this one, just because it's generic except for the level of campiness. Uh, there's a fun little small role from David Cronenberg is like a professor who's going along with the crew. And there is kind of like a funny, <laughs> there's kind of like a weird joke that just doesn't have anything to do with anything where they wonder what he's got on his face. And this Android is with them. She's like, Oh, it's a hockey mask. It's a bit of protective gear for a sport that was outlawed a couple centuries ago. <laughs> I'm like, what? That doesn't fuck. It doesn't fucking have anything to do with anything in this movie. But I guess it's just sort of like weird sci-fi humor. I don't even get what the joke's supposed to be. 
So, yeah. Like I mentioned, we're going to skip Freddy vs. Jason here. We're just going to go to the 2009 uh, remake. And, you know, no disrespect to anyone that worked on the film. No disrespect to the guy who directed it. But what the hell? Like, this one had some creepy moments, definitely. Uh, Jason was very fucking intense in this one. Uh, It's played by Derek Mears, who I think also was in the Hills Have Eyes remake from a couple years prior to this. And honestly, the only other thing of note is just the fact that this is like the one of only two instances where Jason actually uses like a ranged weapon because he uses like a hunting bow in this one to kill someone. And it's actually a really, that is actually a pretty cool kill. Cause like there's this girl at her boyfriend. They're like fooling around in the lake. Uh, he's on like the boat and she's just swimming. Jason actually manages to like hit the guy, I think in the neck with an arrow and it caused him to lose control of the boat and like just, completely clobbers her because she can't get out of the way fast enough. But otherwise, this is just completely generic slasher. The only thing that's really intimidating about this, Jason, is that this one actually runs, which wasn't really a thing for a while, famously in the series. But I don't know. I feel like this was just like a failed attempt to do a sort of, you know, highlight reel just sort of, like, pull the best stuff from every franchise, sorry, from every entry in the franchise, but it just didn't really work out. The only really kind of sympathetic character is played by uh, Jared Padalecki, and that's only because he's just looking for his sister who went missing in the opening scene. But, yeah, I don't know. So yeah, that's the Friday the 13th franchise. I'm going to wrap it up here because we're getting close to 55 minutes at this point. Um, I'm basically just going to go through, and this is kind of just my arbitrary ranking, but in terms of how I'd rank the whole uh, franchise, I'd say best or worst order, it's Jason Lives, Final Chapter, Part 2, uh... New Blood, New Beginning, the original. Uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, Jason X, Jason Goes to Hell, 3D, and then the 2009 remake. All right, so that's it for today. I'm going to be signing off here. Just be sure to come back tomorrow when we'll be talking about the Springwood slasher himself, Freddy Krueger, and talking about... All the shit that went into the crossing that happened. Stay safe. I'm signing off. Goodbye.